Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Insulin pumps have been used for many decades as an insulin delivery form for diabetic patients who otherwise require multiple daily injections. As new technology emerges, insulin pumps have become more user-friendly and they are gaining traction in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes management. Some data suggests that insulin pumps are more effective and increase safety in patients when compared to other forms of insulin delivery. Today, Dr. Lauren Stonerock discusses what makes a patient a good candidate for pump therapy, examines the current pumps on the market, and highlights the role that pharmacists and other healthcare providers can have in managing patient-specific insulin pump therapy. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to discuss insulin pumps with you, as they really have been such a game changer for many patients with diabetes. And now with a lot of new technology has the potential to really help many more patients manage this disease better. We have a lot of information to get through today, so let's go ahead and jump right in. So my biggest goal for today is just to really familiarize you with insulin pumps, how they work, and some of the insulin pumps that we have on the market. And how we're going to do that is look at the history of insulin delivery technology and how it's impacted in diabetes management, and then also look at patient-specific factors that are going to really maximize patients' successful use of insulin pumps. And then, of course, look at our current insulin pumps on the market and highlight some of their specific features. So I'd like to start today with our patient case that is um, on patient RA, as she will kind of pop up with us um, and kind of illustrate a lot of the main points that I want you to take away from today. So she's a 40-year-old Hispanic female who has type 1 diabetes for 25 years. She's an attorney who frequently works late nights and loves to exercise intensely five to six days per week. She's currently married with a two-year-old. She's using 42 units of insulin glargine at bedtime and insulin aspart 10 units twice a day with lunch and dinner. She frequently skips breakfast. However, when she does have breakfast or has an episode of dawn phenomenon, she will give eight units of insulin aspart. She really struggles with checking her blood sugar consistently or remembering if she gave insulin just due to her stressful lifestyle. Today, she expresses frustration with her insulin regimen kind of interfering with a lot of her daily life, and she experiences a lot of hypoglycemia episodes during exercise. She wants to begin training for a half marathon, but really wants to decrease a lot of this glucose variability before she starts. Her A1C currently is 8.3%. She has about five hypoglycemic episodes per week, three dawn phenomenon episodes per week, and about four missed insulin doses a week. So diabetes, as you all know, it's a very prevalent disease. There's 28.7 million patients who are diagnosed with diabetes in the United States. And of those, 1.6 million have type one diabetes. And 6.9 of our type two diabetic patients use insulin. And again, this isn't going anywhere. 1.5 million patients in America are diagnosed with diabetes every year. And it's projected by that 20, 2030, 10 million Americans are going to be using insulin. So in terms of our insulin delivery mechanisms, we have quite a few. Kind of our classics are vials and syringes and pens. 
We also have inhalers that's going to have a dissolved rapid acting insulin that patients take at mealtime. And um, so patients still need to use some kind of basal regimen. Then there's also a patch. So it's filled with rapid acting insulin and it's programmed to just a set amount of basal insulin throughout the day. And then patients do have to mechanically press a button to deliver bolus insulin. And then we have pumps. So we have a lot of options. There's externable programmable devices that are going to deliver insulin throughout the day. And those can be with or without a continuous glucose monitor or CGM. So in terms of challenges with some of our standard insulin delivery, and standard, I mean, our vials and syringes and pens, as patients do use that most often, there's three things I want to highlight, adherence, efficacy, and safety. In terms of adherence, patients really do struggle with a lot of adherence that I've seen with their insulin regimen. And in a diabetes care article, both surveying type 1 and type 2 diabetic patients, 57% did admit to missing injections, and 20% missed their injections regularly. Of course, with insulin use, there's the fear of hypoglycemia. It can be very, you know, patients very time consuming and patients experience burnout, having to check their blood sugar multiple times per day, inject multiple times per day, having people tell them to eat this or don't eat that. And it can just be a lot of overwhelming information. And then, of course, as well, that insulin stigma is still definitely true in this population and there can be embarrassment with that. And then poor follow-up and support is also sometimes an issue with some of these patients. And then hand in hand with adherence goes efficacy. So patients really do have issues with quality of life a lot of the time, as well as the insulin resistance cycle. So patients, as over time, our cells are going to become more resistant to insulin. And to get the same effect of lowering blood sugar, we're going to need higher doses of insulin. And then there's flat basal dosing. So which basically means if a patient gives themselves 20 units of insulin glargine, that is all that they kind of get throughout the day. There's no way to change that based upon their needs. And then with absorption, as increased, as we have insulin doses increase, absorption is going to then decrease. And then time and therapeutic range is something that we're really trying to shift our focus towards with diabetes management. And a lot of the time, patients aren't really meeting that time and therapeutic range. And then with multiple daily injections, you know, we try to kind of get our, mimic our endogenous insulin, but with, as you see on this graph, this dark blue line is going to tell us that's our endogenous insulin. So as you can see, as soon as it's released, it's working, it's doing its job. And the rest of the lines represent some of the, um, insulins that we have on the market today. So again, you're, you're seeing that these peaks and um, aren't really matching up to our endogenous insulin. And then I did not picture the ultra rapid acting insulin that's on the market, just as it is a little bit more expensive and not as commonly used. And then of course, safety. So with insulin use, you know, comes hypoglycemia and the risk for hypoglycemia. And patients can have mask symptoms depending upon their concomitant medications, as well as issues with hypoglycemia unawareness. So over time, if a lot of patients are having hypoglycemia, our normal response is diminished. And so patients don't get that normal shakiness or sweatiness that they would normally get with hypoglycemia. So 17 to 25% of type 1 diabetes patients actually do experience hypoglycemia unawareness. Another issue is dawn phenomenon. And that's basically characterized by a very large increase that's very persistent and hard to control between the hours of 2 and 8 a.m. 
And so that kind of comes about because we have a normal hepatic process that's going to release glucose overnight. But in our patients who use insulin, the insulin dose can wane. And so it doesn't suppress that hepatic process. So thus, patients are going to have larger blood glucose in the morning. And then over, insulin overstacking as well. So that's overcorrection with our rapid acting bolus. And that can happen within three hours of the last bolus because patients don't always take into account the insulin that they've already given throughout the day. And that can increase the risk for hypoglycemia as well. So we've come quite a bit of ways and then we're gonna kind of talk about how the insulin pump kind of came to be. In the early 60s to early 70s, there was a continuous IV infusion pump and kind of the coined term, the artificial pancreas. And it was basically this big auto analyzer that measured blood sugar. And then when it hit a different, a certain range, it was going to then have the insulin infused back into the patient. So I'm not sure about you guys, but I would not want to be hooked up to an IV for my diabetes regimen. So that really didn't work very well. And then in the late 1970s, there was a more portable continuous insulin infusion called the Mill Hill infuser that had batteries and a syringe pump infuser. But again, that convenience issue was a problem as it was about the size of an army backpack. And then in 1983, kind of based off of a lot of the um, aspects of the Mill Hill infuser was the Nordisk infuser. And so that was kind of microprocessor, like controlled insulin pumping. And it had a lot of issues as well with pump blockages, tubing blockages, infection at the site of the cannula or the needle. And then a lot of patients had issues with uh, DKA and hyperglycemia as well. So these were really reserved more for patients uh, that were not really well managed. And then in 1987, in the landmark trial that you may have heard of, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, they actually, the treatment group did have patients that used pumps. And with that, that trial did find that more strict glucose control really did help lower the risk of microvascular complications. And nowadays we have so much technology. We have Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, there's partially automated pumps. You can have a patch pump or a tethered pump and we'll get into all of that. And it really is increasing in the prevalence of pumps. 30 to 40% of patients with type one diabetes are using pumps today. And that number with type two diabetes is less than 1%, just due to you know, a lot of the other medications that we try to use first but that number is increasing. And then I kind of wanted to just give, touch on a little bit of efficacy and safety data. And just to preface, there's really not a whole lot of great robust data um, as this is kind of like a newer, a newer phenomenon. So I wanted to kind of look, have an overarching view of efficacy. And so I used a systematic review um, that was done by some colleagues here at Mayo that looked at 25 randomized controlled trials between the years of 2008 and 2015 and collectively had 2000 patients. So these patients were either receiving multiple daily injections or having pumps and their primary outcome was A1C reduction. And those using pumps did have a reduction of 0.37%, which was statistically significant, but ne not necessarily clinically significant. And a lot of these trials did have manufacturer funding and a lot of the older trials in the early 2010s definitely did have more basic technology than what we have today. And then in terms of safety, there was a trial done and published in 2006 called the Five Nations Trial. And it was 
basically looking at patients who were getting pumps or or um, MDIs, they had a two month run in period and they crossed over with the opposite for six month treatment. And the primary outcome was similar, A1C difference. It was similar to the systematic review trial with 0.23% reduction with those using pumps. And then in terms of secondary outcomes was that safety data that I was really looking for, the hypoglycemia. And hypoglycemia mean frequency per patient year was reduced in our patients with pumps. And I really liked this trial as well, just because they did take into account patients' quality of life. They used a verified tool called the Diabetes Quality of Life Questionnaire to really you know, see how patients responded to using pumps. And those using the pump for the six-month treatment period did score higher on the Quality of Life Questionnaire. And all this to say is that we really do need more data. We need larger RCTs that are really going to be more robust and generalizable to our patients. And also looking at pumps as a treatment strategy rather than at specific pumps, I think would be really important. And then again, looking at those robust patient outcomes and quality of life. You know, Are we making the right decision for our patients when we're switching them to pump therapy? I think too, safety and efficacy long-term outcomes is important, looking at that time and range, any glycemic variabilities and trying to reduce those, and also hypoglycemia unawareness. And then of course, looking at what we have now, there's been so many changes in the technology within the last three years and really have more data to reflect the current options. So that brings us to our first assessment question. So go ahead and you can text the Mayo RX or you can use the pollev.com slash MayoRx for this question. And which of the following is true regarding standard insulin delivery? Yes, so the correct answer is B. So standard insulin delivery can decrease the extent of insulin's absorption. A is incorrect as it, it does not resemble endogenous insulin activity. It doesn't simplify the insulin regimen that a patient's using, and it cannot prevent Dawn phenomenon. So now I kind of want to take a minute and just give you some, you know, nuggets of wisdom when it comes to how are we going to pick a patient to consider pump therapy. And so we have to look at some disease-specific factors. And in our patients with type 1, patients who are adherent to their max-tolerated multiple daily injections and not meeting those glycemic goals, such as the ADA goal of less than 7%, and especially if they're having a lot of complications, frequent DKA, hypoglycemia or hypoglycemia unawareness, Dawn phenomenon, and insulin sensitivity. And then in our patients who are type 2, they have to obviously be using insulin. But if, even if the patient has a positive C-peptide, meaning that they still produce their own insulin, they still be, might be having suboptimal control on their maxed out tolerated MDI. And then patients who also have more of an erratic lifestyle, if they travel for work or have shift work as well. And then spe special populations like our children and competitive athletes and patients who are kind of all around just very have poor quality of life because of their insulin regimen. And I think it's important too, just to not look at disease specific factors, but also the patient and their ability to use the pump because it's still work. Patients still have to manage their disease and manage what their, their regimen, but it may be a little bit easier for that patient specifically. So motivated to manage the pump and all that entails. And then of course, ability to talk with their diabetes care team to make any changes to their regimen, 
So that can include endocrinologists, pharmacists, nutritionists, et cetera. And then also displaying competency in carbohydrate counting, sick day and exercise management, and just overall pump maintenance as well. And then it really is the patient's responsibility to explore their insurance coverage options for both the pump and a CGM if they so choose to use it, and just determine whether this change is going to be affordable for them. And then in terms of our outpatient providers, the biggest thing you can do is really sit down and have engage in that shared decision making with the patient, making sure that this switch is going to be beneficial for the patient in the long run. And then committing to close follow-up, especially in those first few months as the patient is trying to get used to the pump and its settings, just making sure that you're having frequent touch points with the patient. And then maintaining up to date with any pump features that may come out as new technology is always emerging. And then using any downloaded data from the pump to be able to make adjustments as needed for the patient as well. And collaborating with other team members is always super important. And then also working with the pump manufacturer to order the pump. And in my experience with the pump manufacturer, they really do help kind of as the middleman with insurance coverage, paperwork, getting the pump ordered, sent to the patient, and just maintaining that relationship is really important. And then in terms of inpatient, I also want to touch on this because you may be having more patients come in with pumps. And the biggest thing is to decide whether the patient needs to stay on their pump therapy or transition to the institution's insulin protocol. So it really comes down to why is the patient there? What's going to be happening while the patient's there? Does the patient have the, you know, the cognition to be able to manage their pump? Do they have the supplies to manage their pump? And then what procedures may be done while they're there as well? You know, and what implications that has with the pump as well. And then, you know, if you're, the decision is either to maintain or transition off, obtaining an inpatient diabetes consult is also super important just to make sure that the patient can transition easily. So um, we're going to revisit our patient RA now that you have some things that you may be looking for in a patient case to see if they might be a good candidate for pump therapy. So I'll just give you a, a minute just to refamiliarize yourself with the case um, as we're the next poll everywhere question is going to actually be free text. So go ahead and just refamiliarize yourself with RA's case. All right, so just using a few words. What are some aspects of RA's case that may make her a good candidate for pump therapy? Good, intense exercise, awesome. Dawn phenomenon, a busy schedule, hypoglycemia, awesome. These are all really good. So I went ahead and kind of highlighted some of the things that I took away from this case as a patient who may be really good candidate. So you guys all kind of check those boxes, dawn phenomenon, hypoglycemia, missed insulin doses, intense exercise, and also frustration with their insulin regimen too. Great. So how, let's talk about kind of how insulin pumps work. So there's basically two main components, and this is kind of that classic pump that we usually think of. So it's the size of a pager, it has a reservoir, a rapid acting insulin, and then it's connected to an infusion set. So that's tubing that's gonna connect that reservoir to a subcutaneous needle or cannula on the patient. And insulin's then delivered at a basal rate over 24 hours per day. And then bolus is given as needed. And it's pumps are not usually automatic for bolus delivery at this time. So the patient has to communicate with the pump to be able to deliver that bolus insulin. 
So basal rates are programmed in units per hour, but there's going to be those these little pulses every few minutes of insulin, and that can really help with a lot of absorption issues. And the ability to have multiple different basal rates is also very important for patients where they may have a wider schedule variety, athletes, teenagers who sleep late on weekends, just having that ability to say, oh, I'm having a sick day today, let's do that basal rate for the day. So how do we calculate it? So let's take a patient who takes 50 units of insulin glargine and then 10 units three times a day of insulin aspart. That's a total of 80 units, right? So that's our total daily dose that the patient receives throughout the day. And then we need to reduce that number by 10 to 20% to account for that better absorbed insulin that's gonna be working better for the patient. And then for most patients, we assume about a 50-50 basal to bolus rate. And so we'll reduce that number by 50% and then divide that number by 24 hours. And that gives our 1.5 unit per hour basal rate. And that can be adjusted on the base, based on the patient's needs. So say you had a patient with a lot of dawn phenomenon, you can actually increase the basal rate between the hours of 2 to 3 a.m. so that the patient's getting more insulin during that time to suppress the hepatic glucose release. And then in terms of bolus insulin delivery, so that's that immediate insulin delivery that's going to be manually, manually entered by the patient. There's mealtime insulin. So basically these pumps are going to have carbohydrate calculators within them, or patients can also have pre-programmed meals. So if they always have 25 grams of carbs for breakfast, that's what they will put in. Then there's also the option for correction bolus. So that's going to calculate the insulin sensitivity factor for your patient. And, and that's when the patient enters that glucose that they are currently having, then it will give a correction bolus. A lot of pumps currently have lockout features as well to prevent insulin stacking. And they will actually remember how much insulin was given maybe an hour ago and subtract that from the next bolus to help prevent that stacking. There's also options for extended bolus delivery, you know, if they're doing a Thanksgiving buffet and that mealtime bolus will be over time. And then there's also basically with the starting bolus, patients, we usually take about 500 divided by the patient's total daily dose, which gives our estimated carb, insulin to carb ratio. So for that patient that uses 80 units, one unit of insulin covers 6.25 grams of carbs. So like I said, maybe the patient has 25 grams of carb for breakfast, then the insulin pump will deliver four units of insulin. And then we also can calculate the patient's correction factor. And there are a couple ways to calculate this, but I usually use 1800, and that's gonna also be divided by the total daily dose. And that tells us how much one unit of insulin will lower the blood sugar. So for this patient using 80 units, one unit of insulin will lower the blood sugar by 23. And like I said, these are initial settings and these will need adjustment. Every patient's going to respond differently to the pump and have that different absorption. So it's really important to have close follow-up, especially in the first few days of the patient using the pump. And then every one to two weeks to start, I think would be you know the first few months just to make sure that the patient's doing well with the carbohydrate counting and all of that. And usual adjustments are small. We kind of do it similarly with our MDIs, about 10% in basal rates. So kind of some troubleshooting. So we have can have increased fasting blood glucose. That usually means our basal rate's too low. So we would go ahead and increase the basal rate. Or if a patient's having increased two-hour postprandial, 
you know, we can approach that a couple different ways, making sure we're re-educating the patient on carb counting, but also maybe increasing the bolus by 10 to 20% as well. And of course, making sure they know how to manage hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia as well. So with our current insulin pumps, we're gonna get into some specific features, but I kind of wanted to talk about first some factors that it may be important for each insulin pump to decide whether the patient should have one over the other. And I think some things that pop up are like the size of the reservoir, you know, depending on how much insulin the patient uses, as well as the ability to maybe have a small delivery of basal insulin, just for patients who are more sensitive. And then also if a patient wants to have that CGM capability, so picking one that has that. And also looking at the display size of the pump for a patient who may have vision issues. And then also any languages that are available for our patients who sp speak other languages. So with our first mini med 770G is our first insulin pump we're gonna discuss and that's made by Medtronic. It was, um, it's approved just for type one patients. And it's that classic infusion set with the tubing connected to the pump. And it's integrated with the Guardian Sensor 3. Unfortunately, this one does require finger stick calibrations up to three times per day. So if patient, your patient really wanted to get away from finger sticks, this may not be the best option. And the length of wear is pretty standard for all infusion sets, usually 48 to 72 hours. And the reservoir is 300 units of insulin of rapid acting, either Lispro or Aspart is what it's approved for currently. And then it has some adaptive insulin delivery. So the, the Guardian sensor is going to sense what the blood sugar is every five minutes and then adapt the basal rate to that, that blood sugar. And there's a healthcare provider database where all of that data gets uploaded, the patient's blood sugars, if they're having any highs or lows, and you're able to see all of that data and make adjustments as needed. And the pump and infusion set are currently waterproof, but the sensor, the Guardian sensor is water resistant. The languages that are available are English, Spanish, and Mandarin. And something unique about the Minimed is that there is a school nurse guide available which is great for some of our kiddos that have type one and making sure that they're well-managed at school as well. And then we also have the T-Slim by Tandem. It's approved for both type one and type two diabetes. It again has that more infusion set with tubing connected to the pump, that classic pump setting. And then it's integrated with the Dexcom sensor. And a lot of the, the tandem actually can be used without the CGM. However, a lot of those really great artificial technology things go away with that. And with calculations, there's ability to have a lot of multiple personal profiles. So patients can input sick days, travel days, work, alternating work schedules. And there's this great technology called control IQ technology, where it's going to, again, read that blood sugar and adjust as needed. And patients can also have a sleep mode. So if a patient really struggles with dawn phenomenon, that sleep mode will decrease the blood sugar target and make sure that the patient's getting a higher basal rate during sleep. And then also the ability to have activity mode. So when patients are exercising, it's going to set the target a little higher than normal so that patients can avoid hypoglycemia. The tandem is actually just watertight, not waterproof. So patients can be in three feet of water for up to 30 minutes. And the tandem actually has a lot of great English, um, languages available. So there's English, Spanish, German, French, and Italian. I couldn't even fit all of them on the slides, um, but they are mostly European-based languages. And some unique features. 
So the Tandem has a re rechargeable pump battery. So with the Medtronic, it's actually a battery, a AA battery that has to be changed. This can actually be plugged in similar to like a phone um, and be recharged. And then if there are any updates, the patient can also plug it into their personal computer and download any of those new features. And so then we're also gonna talk about the Omnipod. So the Omnipod's a little bit different. And there's also three Omnipods currently on the market, but the, um, the oldest Omnipod is called the Series 400. And it's I'm not really gonna discuss it today as it is the older model. It doesn't have a lot of technology, but you may see patients coming in with that, but not something that we would start a patient on today. So the Omnipod Dash, so like I said, Omnipod's a bit different. It's actually the reservoir, the pump, and the needle all in one. It's ba basically the shape of an egg that the patient's going to wear on the back of their arm. So it's tubeless, it's a patch pump, it's going to stick to the patient, and the Dash comes with a smartphone-like controller. So the patient isn't able to use their own personal smartphone, but they so they have to have that extra um, controller with them, and it is going to communicate with the pump by Bluetooth. And there is no integrated CGM with this one. And it is approved for both type one and type two. The length of wear is about three days and the reservoir is 200 units. So a little less than the others. And so you're maybe thinking, oh, my patient might be using more than 200 units within that three day span, which is okay. Patients would just have to change it a little more frequently. So there is an integrated bolus calculator. There's also meal presets. And then Omnipod has a really big database of common foods and restaurants that patients can just click on. So say they went to McDonald's and had a Big Mac and fries, they can just click, click and deliver the insulin. And you can also have the ability to have a zero basal rate for patients who are really sensitive. The healthcare provider database is called Gluco and the pod is waterproof, but the controller is not and currently available in English and Spanish. And something else that's unique about Omnipod besides its mechanism is that pods themselves are a pharmacy benefit. So the patient doesn't have to get it through their durable medical equipment, which is nice for kind of eliminating that third party. And then also eliminates the need for a C-peptide test as well. And then we have the Omnipod 5. So this was actually just approved only for type ones right now though. And again, it's that tubeless patch pump but it actually can now be controlled on the patient's iPhone. So they did away with that controller. We don't have to use that anymore. And the patient can use their personal smartphone. And it's integrated with the Dexcom G6. Same length of wear and reservoir size, but it's going to have that more adaptive insulin delivery technology. It's gonna predict 60 minutes into the future of the patient's blood sugar and adjust the insulin delivery to meet any pre-specified blood glucose targets. Right now, it's only available in English, but Omnipod is looking for um, ways to integrate more languages. And Omnipod 5 also has um, an activity mode similar to Tandem, where it's going to reduce the basal rate and also set the blood sugar target to 150. So now that we have a little bit more in terms of what's there out there on the market, let's make a plan for our patient. So I had a little, we have a little reminder of some aspects of her case that are really important to think about. But after talking with her about these different options, she really liked the ability to have multiple preset basal rates. She liked the patch style. She liked the having the activity mode and being able to discreetly control everything from her iPhone. And then also having that concomitant CGM so that there's that more automatic 
basal rates that the patient can have if they're having hypoglycemia or dawn phenomenon. So considering this patient's factors and specific pump features, what pump would you choose for our patient today? All right, so most all right answers. So the Omnipod 5, yes, that's the correct answer is C. So the Omnipod Dash does not have that integrated CGM, so that would be incorrect. And then the MiniMed and the T-Slim, they both have that classic infusion set with the tubing, and the patient really did like that patch style because she was very led a very active lifestyle. So Omnipod 5 is that patch, so that would be the great option for her. Awesome, good job, guys. So a couple of things that I really want you to take away from the presentation is that insulin pumps can help certain patients really help man better manage their diabetes. And it also can be managed in the primary care setting. A lot of pharmacists are able to um, make those adjustments as needed. And there's so much technology that's coming out and it really can help decrease the burden of diabetes. We really do still need some more data to show effectiveness and safety, especially with those new options of the closed systems and the adaptive technology as well. But really taking the time to sit down with the patient and choose the pump that's based off of their specific features will really help maximize the chance of successful pump use. And really great things are on the horizon for diabetes management and technology. We have dual hormone pumps that might are going to be coming out that have both insulin and glucagon in them. And then also kind of looking at fully automated pumps where the patient doesn't even have to give the tell the pump that it needs a bolus dose. We do need to look more at ac more accurate CGMs as a lot of them do have delays right now in reading the blood sugar. And then looking at kind of the role of our faster acting insulins that are coming to market and what role they can play with pumps as well. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.